the things that matter in American football, like down and distance. Well, that's an early thing that we, we can do get data cuts on. Personnel. Okay, so which types of players were on the field? Okay, but which specific players were on the field? Interesting. All right, cool. Uh, what defense were we facing? All right. Well, we can know a lot about that, but probably pretty imperfect on our defensive calls unless the teams are filling in that information. And this happens over and over again. And, you know, like late game situations or you know, two minute drill or four minute drill or all this stuff. It's all there. Different defensive fronts. Like, you know, are we facing an odd front or an even front? Like, this is just like, you know, it's not even half of the things that the coaching staff will start to look at and do cuts on uh, video cuts and data cuts to be able to do their weekly analysis. It's a crazy, crazy complicated sport and context in all these situations really matters. Hey everybody, welcome to Unexpected Points. I am your host, Kevin Cole. This is the interview pod, the midweek interview pod. Sorry, I did not have one last week during vacation. Holidays, all that stuff came up, but we have a really great interview this week. It's with Ted Knudsen, who is the CEO and founder of StatsBomb. You can follow him on Twitter at MixedNuts, and that's K-N-U-T-S. StatsBomb is a soccer, aka football, uh, analytics company, which is now branching into American football does amazing work when it comes to computer vision, when it comes to really being able to track and analyze everything out there. I think they have probably the best, at least of those that I have researched, expected goal parameters when it comes to soccer. Now they're bringing over all that expertise. They have alumni there. Derek Lamb used to work there, who is now a research analyst uh, for the Baltimore Ravens. So they have some alumni who used to work there now working in the NFL and bringing over all that expertise. And I think Ted is, and I mentioned this in the interview, such a breadth of of knowledge that I could probably do three different interviews. One talking about his time as a sports better, and then as an originator, uh, working for a sports book, working for Pinnacle, help developing products there. We talk about everything from, you know, how they're working on in-game betting there to how he launched the whole product for Japanese baseball and all the thinking that goes into it. Uh, we also talk about how things differ. As far as soccer analytics, which teams you should maybe root for and be a fan of if you're an analytical guy? Who are the our Ravens or our Browns or our Eagles of the different major leagues throughout Europe in soccer? We talk about all that. And then we get into his work for American football. And, you know, again, like I said, I just could have talked to this guy <laughs> for a very, very long time because I found it that that interesting. Um, again, go follow Ted, check out uh, Stats Bomb work. If you're listening to this podcast, you'll enjoy everything that you hear from him and follow from him there. If you're tuning in because maybe you haven't listened to this podcast before and you like analytics, you like American football, hey, you know, click that subscribe button wherever you're listening to it now. If you're on YouTube, click subscribe there. And if you want to see some of my NFL research that I'm doing, a uh, former senior data scientist at PFF. Now I'm doing my own newsletter on Substack called Unexpected Points. And it's unexpectedpoints.substack.com. All one word for unexpected points. Um, bunch of research there. I have something called Adjusted Scores, which looks at adjustments based upon different variance levels of play outcome. Tries to come up with a better score for a game. I build power rankings based upon that, which can be applied to betting if you want to. 
uh, for how much better a certain team is versus an average team on a neutral field. And I've also developed an adjusted quarterback efficiency number, which goes through and makes adjustments for drops, INT worthy plays, strength of schedule, weather, and a host of other different adjustments, which will tell you, spoiler alert, this year, Patrick Mahomes looks pretty good. Uh, but it also really pushes up guys like Trevor Lawrence this year and pushes down someone like Jimmy Garoppolo, which is probably aligns with what we think about those. So go ahead and subscribe over there. A lot of premium content there. And for paid subscribers, there's also access to a Google sheet that I have, which includes all of my different metrics and the inputs that go into that metrics, into those metrics, which you can copy out or download or do whatever you want to do with there. Uh, that's enough me talking here. If you have any more questions for me, Drop them in the comments on Substack. You can email me unexpectedpoints at gmail.com. And that's unexpectedpts at gmail.com. Go ahead and send me the comments there. Otherwise, we'll get into the interview here. And here is Ted. Okay, Ted, thanks for joining me. I've been wanting to have you on the pod for a while. You touch on a few different areas. Each area, I think I could probably do a whole podcast in itself, talking about your history working um, as a sports book, helping them uh, with their product development there and setting lines, work that you've done in soccer analytics or, you know, football analytics for the few uh, UK listeners we may have out there. And of course, now branching into American football, football here. So this has been qu quite a journey for you. How about we, we kind of divide it up into these, into these three parts and start where everything started as far as getting into working at, at Pinnacle. Um, what was really the, the run up to that? Can you give me a, a short diagnosis on how you became a sports betting guy based upon your you know, educational and professional history? Uh, some background, I mean, background in economics and politics, uh, graduate school for a bit, um, learned some econometrics there and then dropped out to try and figure out, you know, what was next, the tech Tech boom was happening. This is an early tech boom. So like we're talking literally 24 years ago. <laughs> um, so we're talking like the um, Sun Microsystems tech, tech bomb. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. If you've heard the dot-com crash, like that was, that was the time when I was just sort of coming into that career. Um, anyway, so so did some stuff there. Um, worked in Magic the Gathering for a while, which is a kind of a, a weird one for some people. But um and the poker boom was happening then. So this is like 2003 to 2005. Um, poker and sports betting were sort of adjacent. And uh, basically, like, I was doing a job and a friend of mine was like, hey, you're, you know, it's kind of a database nerd. Like, are you interested in doing some stuff? And I was like, well, maybe not right now, but check back with me. Um, so I did that. And, and basically, we were sports betting professionally in American sports, um, football, college football, uh, baseball, a lot of mathematical derivatives type stuff in the United States. So this was a, a, a rare time where you could do this professionally and uh, and make money and, and you weren't illegal or even gray at that time. It was like, okay, mostly. And then the law came in at the end of 2006 that basically outlawed moving money between bookies and banks. Uh, you became uh, violators of the federal RICO Act or something like that. Don't do that. <laughs> for, for those of you thinking about it, that, that's not a good career path for you. So um, but at that time, you're like, all right, so what are we going to do now? Like we're profitable, like not just profitable, but like we could all have, you know, annual incomes and still continue growing the bank. Um, but this became very hard. So started to look into leaving the country, so the United States, in order to continue doing this. 
And um, basically, we had had a good relationship with the managing director at Pinnacle, and he was aware of us. Uh, and so he's like, well, we just left the United States market as well. Um, we need to rebuild our entire product suite for an international market and not just the US. Uh, would you be interested in doing that? And, uh, and so basically started there at the start of 2007 and, and continued on. Uh, that, that was sort of the, the transition moment into, you know, bookie side of gambling as opposed to betting side of gambling. Any thoughts of making residency in the desert in Las Vegas to, to, uh, rather than go overseas? I mean, possibly, but basically minus one, minus, minus 110, minus 110 versus minus 105, minus 105, like on a, on a large aggregate, like, you know, th that math yeah. works out real fast. <laughs> So not, not, not quite as advantageous there. Okay. So now you've, you've made the move, you're developing things like what was your charge essentially there? So you said you have to build things out. That's a pretty, you know, vague, you could go in a bunch of different directions as far as how you want to build things out. Obviously the sports that we're talking about to an international customer versus a U.S. customer is very different. How, how did you approach that finding a solution? Pinnacle felt very much like a mom and pop shop when we came through the door. And I say this with the most respect. Like I, I think that you know, from the outside, when people looked at it, you'd be like, well, this is the smartest bookie in the world. And it was. Uh, but it might not have been the best run bookie in the world. And particularly, it wasn't like the most kind of corporately developed bookie. Um, so when we started, like they had just all these things that we needed to figure out. Uh, you know, some of that being around you know, like, what are the line equivalencies for a money line on all the different handicaps? Um, but anyway, so basically like learning little bits at a time and, and closing kind of old mathematical hole, holes that exist was like the start and Zvi, uh, who's my business partner is, you know, the math genius. I'm sort of like an implementation person and sometimes an idea person. Um, so like Zvi would do a lot of the math work and then I would figure out like, you know, how do we get this into product? How do we get out to the front end? How do we train people up on this, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so like our charges early on were very clearly get soccer to be good. Uh, so, you know, go in, figure out all the problems with it and then align it to what the management wanted. And then also figure out how we could start doing live betting. Uh, and those were like the really two big things that started that then trailed into things like, you know, launching all of the different growth sports, which includes, you know, international hockey and volleyball and all you know some sports you've probably never heard of like bandy <laughs> and uh and then f really restructuring. Everyone's, everyone's into f1 now in the united states so there was some stuff that we didn't touch like formula one back then was pretty popular but we didn't touch it because like we weren't really sure what the gambling market looked like um cricket in particular like we knew had a pretty big gambling market on the subcontinent but we weren't sure what the international market looked like and it looked like it wanted to be ongoing live a lot and so like if you're prioritizing things that's the thing that you kind of push back because i don't understand it as well uh but yeah. then then we started like a department by department like going in and restructuring everything filling it with talented people uh building the mathematical products to be able to trade the sport better and to, to be able to offer a better product offering uh and so like it was a you know at least four very hard years of work. And then the, the last four were kind of more specific in figuring out kind of specific sports like tennis or, you know, just kind of enjoying the, the fruits of your labors and, 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 and not working as hard. 
Yeah, that's 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 got to be beneficial. Um, okay, well, I want to think about this. And you know what? Just earlier today, I was listening to the the Bet the Process podcast, which I know you've been on with Jeff Ma and Rufus Peabody. They were talking about some of the edges that may have been whittled away based upon products that Rufus is working on. Which some, you know, sports betters, if you haven't been on social media, they have a tendency to complain about things. They've been complaining about their edge getting. Uh, whittled away by by some of these things, whether it has or not, I'm not sure. But I guess from your perspective, if you know Ted the better, let's say the sports better, was looking at what Ted the bookmaker was doing, would he have been cursing him for, for oh, taking absolutely. away edges and maybe even influencing the broader market for those edges? So angry, so angry at all the things <laughs> that we fixed. Uh, we offered better products though, so we opened up new things that you could find an edge. Like right. we, we both giveth and tooketh away, if you're going biblical on it. Um, but yeah, I, it would have been quite frustrating. But that was like literally my job. Like, how do we make the bookie that you have some small amount of equity in uh, a, a better functioning thing? And, you know, it it kind of led into a lot of the things we do at the startup level, which is like, how do you make customers happier? How do you find products that they're excited to gamble on that you can also make money on? Um, but I, I will also say, like, people talk about bookies and and they think of them in what exists for their offerings now. Like, we were not a fan duel, DraftKings, whatever. Like, we were fucking giant Goliaths of volume that had very cheap offerings for a bookie. So you needed to, on many of the sports that we had, you needed to win like 51.5% of the time in order to be a profitable better there. Like, that's a different world than having to win, you know, 52.5 or having to win, say, 54%, depending on what you're gambling on. And it really is, you know, we were, we were much more open to customers being able to win and have advantages. Yeah, and I guess you, you gain knowledge through some of that. So I would wonder when you were approaching let's say, these new markets, because you probably had ideas on existing markets on where the edges were, what you could fix. But when you're approaching new markets, it, do you have any like ballpark idea of what, how much you were able to anticipate maybe coming into it as far as how to lower a better's edge or how to be more right in a way um, in your pricing versus how much you're learning from customers as you're implementing something? So the first rule that we learned was try not to lose. And I think that that, you know, like you're trying to protect your game a lot. Um, you know, if you're if you're taking it in different um, different gaming metaphors. Uh, so like, don't assume that you know anything and and figure out like how to go from there. But we had really clear guidance from the managing director as to I want these to be very aggressively priced. Like they need to have small margins uh, wherever we can get away with it. So the maximum margin that we offered on stuff was like, four percent minus 108 minus 108 and that was on our live offerings everything else that we created was was cheaper than vegas prices and in some cases lots cheaper so then the question is all right like how do we either lose small or gradually learn enough and create a good enough product that we can win bigger as we go and that's a that's a that's a fantastic challenge sometimes not always is that realistic but something that you certainly learn and it gets written into your dna as a as a bookmaker that doesn't exist in a lot of places now. Well, what levers do you have for that other than, I guess, limits? Let me let me walk you through the creation of a new product because I think that okay, this is this is probably the the way to talk about it. Um, so Japan, Japanese baseball, particularly challenging. 
you can't actually read the news on Japanese baseball in like 2008, 2009. You can go to the Yahoo site and you can find out the transliterated name of the pitcher that day that you think is correct, but it doesn't always work out that way. So in baseball, for those of you who've never bet on it, pitching matchups really matter. <laughs> and, and in fact, if the pitcher changes, they cancel all the wagers on the full game bet because the pitching mat matchup matters that much. We couldn't do that in Japanese baseball because we didn't know who the pitcher was going to be. So you have an estimate of who you think the pitching matchup is, but you're, you're on your own. You don't get action or no action based on it. And then at 5 o'clock UK time, uh, I would post the lines for the next day. And then these games would start anywhere from 2.30 a.m. UK time to like 10 a.m. UK time. So like they would go up overnight. But from 5 to 9 or 5 to 10 p.m., I would open at $50 and people would hit the early lines and they were based off of my estimates of what we thought these things should be. And then gradually other people, you know, bat it back and forth. You get a little more comfortable. You open it to a hundred, maybe after an hour, after another hour, you open it to like 200. And then by the time that you kind of have the overnight lines, you're looking at maybe 500, 250, depending on how comfortable you are with that line. Then it sits for three to five hours. And then I come back at an impossibly stupid time. It was a very hard product to work on at the time. Um, and then you're like, okay, so we're going to open it to a thousand and then eventually we'll open it to 2000 and that'll be when we take, you know, full action on it. But if we get really good two-sided action and we're comfortable with it, maybe we'll open it to four, right? So it goes from $50 to 4,000 in a period of, you know, say 12 to, to 14 hours. Like that's what you're doing in this product, but the VIG stays the same. It's minus 108, minus 108. So like the whole time. You're just trying to find your, your feet on this and you'll find some people that win and they may be aligned on the same side or sometimes they don't. And if they don't, well, that's quite interesting as well. And so that is the whole process that I would do every single day for the whole Japanese baseball season. Uh, I was exhausted at the end of it because my sleep schedule was totally screwed up. But that was how we launched it. And I, I held 1.6% that year, which was really, really good for a product that you have no idea on and you can't even have pitching matchups. I mean, it sounds to me, I I'm wondering, okay, so this was something that was not offered by any equivalent sort of sports book in the region or not offered at all other than maybe like a Tokyo street bookie or, or something like that. Tokyo street bookie equivalently was what that was. Yeah. And, and okay. we have had some sports that we did over time. Like Pinnacle also learned how to launch esports. They were really the first bookie to ever do that on a, on a real scale level. And now like there'll be some esports that they'll take 50,000 a pop on bets, like, you know, when it's ongoing. So it, it teaches you, you know, sometimes these are really interesting products. You learn the DNA of how not to lose. And then eventually you start to be a little more comfortable and Hey, I'm going to you know push a bit in this area, push a bit in that area. For a better, you're kind of flipping it around. Like, how am I cautious early? Like, what do I think I know? What do I not know? Um, you know, am I having success in this? Am I not? Like, what does the pricing look like? Like, you don't want to pay big fees if you can if you can not do that. So, how do I find the cheapest way for me to get down on the regular basis? Yeah, I was just gonna say, putting on maybe like Ted the the better cap on again. Is there a cat and mouse game then in trying to figure out when you want to bet weighing the positives and negatives of uh, something that might be mispriced or you believe is a little bit off market versus how much you can get down on a particular game? Sure, absolutely. Uh, but in some cases, you're like, if I can get down a lot and I think that this price is really wrong, what am I missing? 
Um, yeah. I, sometimes as from a quantitative perspective, like how much sample size do I have on this? How comfortable I am? Am I with the model? Um, you know, what are the holes in the model? Like every model has holes. And in fact, like over time, I started taking a multi-model approach. Uh, but as long as your traders know what the holes are, they can kind of counteract that and fill that in with, you know, human information and intuition. Uh, so yeah, all those things play into it. Um, yeah, and sometimes you get a little scared and you back away from something that seems like good value. But other times, like the place that you flush the most equity down the toilet is when your model thinks that there's huge equity in something and value in it, and you put a bunch of money into it, but the model has this big hole or flaw that you didn't know about until after you lost a bunch of money and went back and reviewed it. Now, I would imagine that live betting when we talk about holes in the models, maybe some of the biggest there, it's a big area of growth. Um, we'll see how much is actually worth, but you know, there's a lot of companies out there who've been hiring dozens of, you know, Ivy league educated data scientists to try to be able to, to properly price things like that. Um, what were the lessons there? Cause is this something where you have to have someone watching the game to really know what's going on concurrently? Can you price this in a type of model? I mean, I'm not sure what the inputs are for, you know, a deck prism or someone like that when they're putting out stuff, but you know, sometimes they even put out probabilities where I'm wondering whether or not it's really that is really that correct. So it seems like a very difficult problem to do something in game, not, you know, momentum or those sorts of things, which I think we could pretty much discount, but injuries, but strategic changes, but I don't know whether that may have changed during the game, all those sorts of things. It's incredibly difficult. I wish them the best of luck. Sometimes you're protected by the VIG, other times you're not. Uh, but there are also plenty of times where somebody else thinks they know a lot of things and they're totally wrong. And so like, if you can get that kind of action on a regular basis, like you've probably got something that's profitable. It's, it's hard and it's, it's in some cases exhilarating. One of the things that we struggled with a little bit was late game inflection points, especially with NBA. Um, you know, we were pretty comfortable with our NBA product. We didn't sort of look at substitution patterns as much. We knew who was playing from before live started. So that's useful. You take the closing line of the pregame and then you fa factor that into um, the, the live line and then it goes from there. Um, but yeah, it's a, you know, it's wild, wild west in some cases. Like I was trading some stuff in American football like in 2012 to 2014 live. Uh, so like one to two games a week. And sometimes like even now, like I think it's worse. Like you're seeing more giant comebacks. You're seeing more win probability golfs that happen that you're like, I'm pretty sure the model's putting out a wrong number here. It shouldn't be as confident as it is. Uh, but it just gives you an indication that says that, hey, this is super challenging. Because it's super challenging, that means that betters can make money on it. And, and you know, maybe you can find those, those spots. And in the meantime, you know, the more product you offer, the more areas that you probably have problems. And so, you know, from a bookie perspective, it makes sense to be cautious and, and careful uh, more so than be like, oh, yeah, we're awesome. Like, we're going to offer you everything. Good luck. Yeah, yeah. I, I've always wondered about live betting because, but, but you can help me out with the market a little bit. So is it more of an ingrained thing overseas for soccer than it is here? And if so, doesn't that mean you're attracting a more sophisticated clientele generally, I guess? Um, and is that an issue? Mm, I, I like, think Are people that's... just firing off bets? Are people just firing off bets on these things as much? Is it is it more of a soccer thing? I don't know. I, I guess that's it's probably more popularized there, right? It's just a longer history, right? People will live yeah, bet. Yeah. Um, they're happy to do so. They'll they'll cash out, uh, which often is like 
very strongly negative EV, but maybe you read something that it's not. Um, yeah, scoring so, happens less often, you know. Oh yeah, I mean that's that's a big deal, right? Like there's there's much more variance in in soccer and live soccer. We get like ridiculously large positions in live soccer. Uh, just because the world was disagreeing with the model. Um, but it took us four years to get like a highly profitable, I say highly profitable, a, a significantly profitable model in live soccer, uh, like four years of full-time development. We broke even for a while. We lost a bunch in the first two years, not because we were aggressive, but just the learning journey. So it's the type yeah. of thing where you have to invest in it. You have to iterate on it. You have to improve on it. And then eventually you can get to a point where you're like, all right, this variance is the result of people probably being wrong. And if we're if we have a big enough bankroll, we're able to ride that variance wave, then we will be highly profitable at the end of the year unless something went went wrong. Uh, but you know, it's it's a it's a careful little dance, and and sometimes you get punched in the nose a lot. Yeah, like, like I said, I think we can do a whole hour on this, but let me I want to hit you with a couple of <laughs> uh, maybe like theories about betting that you can debunk or not or confirm. And then we'll and then we'll kind of get into the the different sports sides, the analytics on, on soccer and football. So first is, you know, some people will say, oh, well, you know, you can ignore what a point spread may be. For instance, you know, if we're talking about the Vikings this year, you say oh, the Vikings are no good. Look how they're priced versus the. Uh, Detroit Lions. And then some people say, well, that doesn't matter. You know, those are just the books are just trying to get even money on both sides. And then other people will say, well, the books are trying to be as much right as possible. And that's all they're really trying to do. Tell me why both of these people are wrong, because they probably both are wrong in some way. So books have different sets of goals. Uh, mm -hmm. And you don't necessarily know transparently from the outside whether they're trying to win by based on taking um, unbalanced action but being on the right side more often it is extremely difficult uh, especially if you're adjusting your prices at like you know five or ten cent intervals to have a lot of liquidity that you control well uh, you're sort of like tucked into the market uh, pinnacle moved uh, at a penny a, a movement right so like you know you could have minus 111 plus 101 <laughs> or you could have you know minus 109 minus 101 one, like these things, it's very different. And so like being able to balance that, giving you a little easier way to do that. So I think the traditional look on what books are actually trying to do is often totally wrong, uh, but difficult to parse from the outside. The other thing I think is that yes, comparative um, sort of comparative pricing and comparative strength and power rankings like make a lot of sense, but football itself, American football is the most contextual sport in the entire world the entire world. It is unbelievable. Basketball, you have a bigger impact on a per player basis, but football itself, especially for a couple of positions, like it is devastating. And, you know, in some cases the, the turf matters in some cases, the wind, <coughs> it's all the stuff. Um, yeah. some cases it's even schematic, right? You would say this scheme doesn't seem to match up with this offense or this personnel package very well, but like, that's a real SME, like subject matter expert level view. So it's, it's tricky. Sorry, I'm dying over here. I, no, my, no my worries. <laughs> yeah, so I, so I think I guess... that people people will find the reads that they want to, but uh, finding somebody that's right all the time, like, could, it's just impossible. Okay, and then maybe another thing on here is how what sort of markets can they be? I don't want to say lost leaders because they're not really leaders, but maybe like marketing versus actually caring about it in some sort of ways. I mean, for instance, 
um, you'll see these ridiculous markets that'll come out and then people will publicize them on social media. They say, you know, who will be the next coach of this team? And, you know, it'll include Sean McVay or someone who really has the 0% chance of actually leaving. And they're just trying to use it as, as marketing. That doesn't sound like that was something that you were doing at Pinnacle, but do you think that some of these things that maybe can be taken a little bit more seriously than they deserve to be as far as being accurate on the pricing? So one of the things that sort of more traditional bookies will do often is they'll put out something that's only one-sided. Like I can bet Sean McVay to be the coach, but I can't bet him not to be the coach, which isn't really <laughs> right, a market. Right. Like you kind of get an all round and you get a, a pricing big, but like there'll be a lot of nonsense in the, inside of that. And sometimes they'll use it as a, as a hook, but if it's not a two-sided market, that is not a real market, is it? Um, unless, you know, you feel like you've got a huge edge on, on the one. So I think that that's kind of how those types of things work. Uh, but if you've got a pretty tight all round, so like, you know, this is the whole group of people that could do that. And you might say other is also a price on that. So like not listed or something like that. And, you know, you could offer that at, at a 5% margin. Like that's a pretty interesting market to be able to bet on. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so let's get into your transition then away from the betting space and then into building Stats Bomb, of course, first in, in soccer. What's the, the, the backstory there? My wife decided that she wanted to communicate with me very clearly when we had two young children and that working every single weekend was not in the best interest of our family. And I think that she was 100% correct. Uh, yes. If you work in professional sports betting, like that's pretty much what you do all the time. And, you know, honestly, the coaches, the coaching space, like I have like real respect for these guys because of the sacrifices their families have to go through in order to mm -hmm. enable that. Like, you know, sometimes these, they don't see them very often during the season. That's hard. Uh, so I made a choice that I wanted to be with my family more often. Ironically, by going into professional soccer and working uh, in the in the sort of quantitative space, but I didn't have to work every single weekend. So that was like significantly different. Um, then yeah, eventually, came out of building your own company, right? Building your own company. You say, ah, oh, anyone who wants to spend time with their family should should found their own company. That that works. You know, I, I have continued to manage to spend time with my family, despite the fact that I might not have always made the choices that would, you know, lead you to believe that, oh, yes, yeah. he's definitely spending more time. Uh, but you're correct. Eh, I, I, I'm pretty unique in, in most of my journey. I would not recommend replicating it and <laughs> expecting the same outcome. Um, <laughs> so anyway, uh, yeah, so I worked in professional soccer um, for a team called Brentford and also their sister team called Michelin did that for a couple of years and decided that a lot of the work that I'd done before I went inside of those teams and then some of it that we learned inside of them was probably going to happen broadly across the soccer space. Um, that was my vision of the future. And if that was the potential, then you should build a company to be able to sell to all of those teams, et cetera. So we built the, a tools company first and then basically toward the end of the first year started generating our own data in a, in a prototype, thinking that we could build better data as well. And that led into all sorts of interesting conversations and better analysis and better skill set archetyping for the soccer space, better tools, etc. So that's what we did. And now we have over 200 customers around the world in soccer. We kind of run the transfer market to some extent, or at least our data like powers the transfer market. Right. Um, and that's been, you know, the story of Stats Bomb from like 2017 up until now. It's interesting when you talk about the data versus 
tools I kind of get, but even more so trying to sell like insight from the data to different teams. Because if you think about, um, let's just talk about the American football equivalent. I mean, PFF is, it's really a data company, right? And there's been stuff that's been built on top of it, but that's its foothold. That's where it's gone. That's where it has the the history. That's where the teams really kind of need this sort of, of equivalency to have versus the other teams when when they're selling that sort of product. Yet there's been some companies who've now come into the larger sports market, uh, Zealous Analytics. Now they have this um, Sumner or Summer, Sumner, <laughs> Super, Sumner. I was get it wrong. Super Sports, which is starting now, which is again selling insights. Where I'm a little bit more, I'm not dubious of the value of it. Maybe I'm a little more dubious of teams being willing to say, okay, we're going to outsource our insight as opposed to saying we have value in this data that we then want it for ourselves. How do you think about those two things and, and how you're selling it to customers? So the data space, I think, is very clean. Um, yes. And then in our case, like as a data provider, we also do data science and, and have a history of doing data science before we provided data. Uh, so what we do is like we kind of democratize um, a lot of the data science stuff in that way. And so we'll build models on top of our data. We understand the breadth of the data. We understand like multi-gender, which is a soccer problem. Uh, it'll be a basketball problem when we get there. Um, and so like we do, we do deliver some unique elements of insights and analysis, partly based off of our expertise, but also expect teams to do, you know, a lot of their own work. Um, with the, the Zealous and the, and the Sumer, the way that I think of it is a little like this. Um, it's really expensive and extremely difficult to find the best people to do this right now, right? And executing still remains across multiple sports the most important thing you can do. Like there's so much good research that says that even with relatively straightforward data, if you just implemented and executed well, you'd be better than 90% of the teams out there. Um, if you are a Sumer or a Zealous, like you can figure out who the best people are and hire them um, and, and bring them into your business model. And then you can deliver insights to a limited subset of teams that then need to execute it and maybe build their own proprietary stuff alongside that as well. I think that's the way that they think that, that it, it can and should work. And I think that that's in sort of inherently interesting. Um, just knowing that some of these sports in particular are so far behind in generating like top tier talent right now. Like they don't have a deep pool of talent. It's only so many people in the quant space, in the analytic space, um, especially in American football and soccer. I think basketball is more developed and baseball is much more developed in that area. Um, so that's why I think that like, that's kind of how that plays out. And I think it's interesting to watch. It's not our business model, but it's pretty cool. And then when you were first approaching this, this was definitely a time in international soccer where that talent and that pipeline and the hiring ability and those sorts of things did not exist and the data did not exist, I assume. Yeah, we we were very early and to the point that I came out and I was like, oh, we had success and like we were starting to turn like significant transfer profits. Like, where's my next job? And two years later, you're like, oh, there basically are no next jobs yet. Like, that's frustrating. Yeah. Uh, now there are lots of next jobs, but there's still like, because worldwide soccer is such a, there's so many teams, uh, you know, it, it's such a big space that like, they're going to need a decade of people to come into this and train themselves up and get trained in order to fill all the vacancies that they're going to have in the next two years. So like, there's going to be a big competition for the smart people. And we've seen that, you know, in other sports as well. So like, it's just mimicking what's happened elsewhere.
what do you think the current state is of inter international soccer vis-a-vis, -vis, let's just say the NFL as someone who clearly wouldn't be on the same level as, as the NBA or, or MLB. So as something versus the NFL and, and now that you have your, you know, you're dipping your more than your toe, your whole foot into the NFL at this point. I think that the top half of teams in the NFL are probably very good and very well advanced. Like they've been doing this for years. They may not talk about it, but they, they've been around and you know this from having been around the space too. Like you'll meet secret employees of, of teams that have been there since times you're like, really? Wow. That's, that's incredible. And your coach has yeah. clearly said that he doesn't believe in analytics, but you know, if I believed in analytics and I was a coach and somebody asked me about it, I was like, no, that's, that's nonsense. We just do things. Um, so I think the, the top half is, is pretty sharp. And I think that a lot of the best funded soccer teams are now either on the way to becoming pretty sharp or actually are. Um, but I would say that if you view not just the NFL, but 150 or whatever FBS teams in college um, as like the breadth of this, you've got 180 teams, uh, 16 of which are pretty sharp. And then a whole bunch of teams that have not even begun to scratch the surface of what can be done with data and recruitment and opponent opposition analysis and all that stuff. And so I think that actually in that way, soccer is probably further ahead because it's gone much further down the food chain. Interesting. So what are you, you mentioned transfers and that's a whole different sort of problem. I mean, in some ways you can literally like buy a player, right. In, 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 uh, in soccer versus, versus trading for a player. So when we're talking about putting a value on them is putting a dollar number on a player can be translated that what other areas are we talking about? Like what can a fan, a very casual fan in, in my case, is there anything you can watch during the game to get an idea of a particular team, maybe more, uh, leaning into certain strategies than another team, or is it mostly on the personnel side? So I just want to point out that I feel like NIL means that there's a lot of similarities between world soccer market and college transfers. And I think that that's True. important to note. True. Uh, literally the, the, buying the, the, a player's the payment economics. Mechanism. The payment mechanism is not quite as direct, uh, but you can find the right people. If you, if you know the right, there's a lot of good old boys in a lot of different places who can, who can make it happen. To be honest, in college, the payment mechanism has often not been as direct, but still quite effective. Uh, let, True. Let's True. Leave it at that without getting in too much trouble there. Um, so around the soccer space is, is slightly tricky. Like one of the the tells is like, you know, are they good at executing on set pieces? Uh, you have to have some level of expertise to figure that out. But it's something that has come up as an ongoing thing that you know, good teams do and focus on moderately well inside the game. Like it's difficult to find analytical tells unless you're kind of in that world. Um, it's a bit like, so say American football, like we, we often have this question and, and this, this discussion among people that kind of have lived in this world for a while. Like if you had to build early tells uh, around like, you know, teams that are analytically smart or not, like what do you do? Right. And it used to be really easy. Oh, they're going to go for it more often on fourth down or, you know, two-point conversions. And now that like more teams are doing that, you're like, well, you know, how do they use the middle of the field? Uh, what do they do in certain personnel packages? But then, you know, cover two comes in and like, how does that adjust all the things that you thought were like analytically sharp or before? So it's, it's a very adaptive universe in American football, but still some reasonable tells. In soccer, it's kind of wide open and it depends on what your personnel are supposed to be able to do. Uh, it's a little trickier to, to pull that out. 
Okay. So like, let's just, again, I'm my, from my own personal benefit here. If I'm going to adopt, let's say I'm going to adopt like a premier league team. Who, who should I be rooting for? Who are the, the like Ravens of the, that I could adopt here? Is it still Liverpool or is it someone else who's, who's stepping into the void here that we can claim? So Liverpool just had a, or was it never Liverpool? Of, no, it definitely was like, that was, okay. that was a slam. <laughs> so to make sure at least I have my history. Correct. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Um, they just had over the last two years have had a bunch of transitions of people out of of their quant side, and I don't know the backstory. I I actually don't want to find out because I I don't I can come on podcasts and say I have no idea and not be lying. Um, but that's been a, a slight adjustment there. Um, Manchester City like have a lot of you know economic firepower, but they've invested a lot in the quant side. I would say honestly. Like the Billy Bean, Luke Bourne group, uh, they are not Premier League yet uh, in that they haven't bought a team. But you've got, they took over AC Milan uh, earlier this year. Uh, AC Milan, even before that, like we helped a little bit behind the scenes there. So they're, you know, quantitatively sharp as well as what else they do. And then Toulouse is also owned um, by Billy and Redbird, Red Ball. And then Billy's also been on the, the board of Azed Alkmaar in the Netherlands for a long time. Those three teams kind of combined to be something that, you know, people that have seen Moneyball, you're like, oh, wow, I, I immediately have some rooting interest over there. Now, there are a couple of teams. Um, I'm thinking of gambling quant types who've got into ownership. Um, again, I, I'm not as aware of the, the space of what's going on, but I know at a very lower level team in, in Crawley Town, there was uh, Preston Johnson and then Jeff and Rufus and a bunch of other people in kind of the DFS slash gambling space in the States have some ownership there. Uh, Bob Volgaris, who is a famous uh, NBA sports better, has gotten into a, a team, I think a Spanish team there. Do you have, do you have any feelings about them? And do you think those sorts of mindsets you being a former better yourself will just generally be successful or more successful adopting those ideas and bringing them over? Um, I have some optimism on Bob's part. I think Bob is, is super sharp and also learned a lot of, hard lessons, um, you know, with the Mavs and, you know, things that are difficult to do inside of sports teams versus otherwise. Uh, like, so I, like, I think like Bob, become the owner, like be the owner. That's a good one. That's a good be lesson. The, be the owner is really useful if you want to get shit done. Uh, like, yeah. you know, get it all the way down to the field. The Crawley group, I think, have been learning very much painful lessons on the fly and have made some mistakes around culture that I think have been challenging for them. Um, yeah, often American owners will come into places that uh, are are very foreign language based, and assume that it's much easier than it actually is. And so, like that's a a mistake that we've seen made over and over. And those are often really painful lessons that may or may not eventually get ironed out. So, but I think that in general, like quantitative principles in running sports clubs have been proven to be dominant. Like it's a dominant strategy. As long as you're able to, to make sure that you execute well and you get the learning down to the field or the pitch or the court, like it is a dominant strategy. It just takes some time. So that's kind of my perspective on, on all of that. And we've seen, you know, Matthew Benham is a, you know, longtime professional sports betting hedge fund owner, Tony Bloom also. So that's Brentford and Brighton that started out as much smaller clubs than they currently are, but they're Premier League clubs and, and they've been run on those principles the entire time. Now, have you heard um, objections 
I don't know if object is the right word, but not when selling data, but maybe in the more in the insights, in the inside way. You mentioned culture as being part of it. It's interesting because I heard an interview again on Bet the Process where Preston Johnson was talking about some of the things, and it kind of sounded like he was a little bit gun shy to do some things because of the deep rooted significance amongst the fan base that maybe he didn't properly appreciate coming into it. But at the same time, looking back, maybe it was a mistake not to push forward with some of those things that he, again, he became gun shy in doing that sort of thing. So you must hear that as an objection. How seriously do you take something like that? And what's a thoughtful way to, to approach that because that's a big thing. That's always a big difference is that, you know, the numbers people don't care about these things that, that matter that don't show up within an analysis and culture being one of those things. Some stuff definitely matters. Um, Coaches being able to deal with like a happy dressing room versus an unhappy dressing room is a big challenge. Uh, You know, character among your recruits definitely matters. Like if you, you know, say you're outside of the sporting context and you have a team that you think is, you know, highly motivated and good character and everybody sort of pulls on the same rope, like that's a big deal for a business too. It's not just a sporting context, but, you know, the competitive landscape of sport probably amplifies that a little bit. And so the no assholes policy is one that we strongly believe in. And we have, we've learned it. And I won't say that we, we did research and in terms of like paper, but we certainly felt that we had a very comfortable understanding of how important that was at the team level when I was at Brentford and Mitchland. And then since that time, so that's, those wait, bits wait, wait, are, we're talking are about coaching strong. staff or in, or in, or in players here. Cause I guess someone above. will always players, someone will always point out like, you know, Michael Jordan might be the biggest asshole like on the planet, right? Or Kobe Bryant was probably an asshole or things like that. So, but they had extremely high more... standards that they enforced and they expected their teammates to enforce that as well. And they were the big enough dogs right. to be able to do that. So, yes, don't be an asshole in that way. But high standards is incredibly important. You can't be lax. And, you know, in some cases, like you will see, many of the most successful people are slightly sociopathic. Right, right. Okay, so that that's that's interesting. And then I guess my other point on that would be how much of it is these things are being ignored because of the lens that maybe analytical thinkers are looking at it and how much of it is purely, you know, you just don't have data, right? It's like we're talking about college football prospects. If someone watches out in the NFL, a lot of the time it might be because of some of these softer things when it comes to work ethic, when it comes to interviews, where they may be able to get from, what they may be able to get from references, where you just don't have that. You have the numbers, how they produced on the field. You have the film. You don't have those other things. So it makes sense that it's downweighted, but is it more just to have an appreciation for what the unknown unknowns in a way? Yeah, you're still looking for character elements around the references. You know, the scouts will talk to people's parents or people's teammates or stuff like that. And like, the, there's still some signal in that that has value. It's certainly true in soccer. Like, if you're paying fifty million for a person, uh, person's like contractual rights, like you better be damn sure that they're going to continue to work. And some guys like they just burn out, right? And you know, one of the things I always find interesting in the NFL is like fans have zero, zero knowledge and understanding of injuries behind the scenes right? Especially for quarterbacks. And if some dude's production changes dramatically, you know, from the first eight weeks until the second eight weeks, like my instinct is like, oh, I wonder if he's picked up an injury they didn't want to talk about, but you know, he might have a a shoulder thing or like an elbow thing or, you know, even his hand, like whatever. But like, everybody's like, oh, he's, he's terrible now because of this, that, and the other thing. I'm like, he's probably in a lot of pain 
and no longer able to yeah. perform his job at the way that he was before. But because injuries is such a secretive thing and they want to keep it, you know, down on the down low, like nobody talks about that. But it's almost very clearly the first leading indicator of, oh, this is why this guy's performance actually dropped, not because he's become terrible all of a sudden. Right, right. Okay, let's let's talk your transition now to American football. So it's interesting to me because in a way, is this is there something in particular about American football which makes it a natural transition from soccer? Um, PFF has kind of gone the reverse now going from uh, football to soccer, or is it just part of maybe like you mentioned basketball potentially getting into the future, or part of a multi-stage progression and you know, just happen to be the next one that you're, that you're going into. It is multi-stage progression. Uh, we do have the director or former director of research, basketball research at the Milwaukee Bucks on our staff. Uh, so, you know, like these things That's kind of Seth fit part together. now, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I note that like you're, you're being very careful about PFF. Like we used to be on other sides of the fence here, like potential competitors, but uh, you know, like now, now we're, 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 we're chilled about it. Um, yeah. It is natural to, I think, want to be a multi-sport company as you look for growth opportunities. Um, in my case, I had some time and my two favorite sports and probably the ones that I'm, I'm smartest about were soccer and American football. And yeah. so because of that, uh, I was a very, well, I wouldn't say very, I was a sharp better in American football. So kind of understood a lot about what helps win. And we're like, all right, can we recreate similar concepts around what we've done in soccer? to be able to pull that off, to be able to add value, to design data and tools that help the people inside the teams, especially do their jobs better. And so we spent you know, two plus years grinding on that. And I'm pretty happy with where we've gotten to, but that's why we did it. It felt like when we started developing this product, like the fourth down arguments in public were prominent, but it was, it was early in that, that prominent cycle. And so you're like, if that's happening right now, then like the whole sport is becoming sharper. If we get a product out there in the next couple of years, like we should hit the timing pretty well. And then we got hit with the transfer portal and we're like, Oh, well, this is just, this is luck. This is, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like I mentioned the applications fit, fit perfectly there. You've been pretty um, explicit about the fact of American football being, I don't, I don't know what your exact terminology was. I don't know if it's the most complicated or the most unique or the the most interesting. I don't know that probably contextual. Wasn't right but what, what contextual? The contextual of sports. So maybe elaborate on that a little bit as to what you what, what you mean by that. Would you? Would it be fair? I was thinking about this soccer football analogy. This is probably really bad, but it's kind of like every play is a set piece in a way in in football. Um, would you agree with that or not? Every play is a chess situation that has different uh, pieces on the board. And not only does it have different pieces on the board, but you might have like a life counter as well. And you don't just die if somebody takes your king, but like, you know, you could lose future pieces or like you could be further behind or something like that. It's super, super complicated. Um, so you start out in sort of the same situation, but you can bring in different pieces. And so to, to elaborate directly, like, the things that matter in American football, like down and distance. Well, that's an early thing that we, we can do get data cuts on. Personnel. Okay, so which types of players were on the field? Okay, but which specific players were on the field? Interesting. All right, cool. Uh, what defense were we facing? All right, well, we can know a lot about that, but probably pretty imperfect on our defensive calls unless the teams are filling in that information. Uh, against different types of routes, what does this guy do? 
uh, okay, and, and different types of players. Like, can we bucket players to be able to compare them? Like, can we increase our sample size of fast wide receivers or tall wide receivers that are close enough to each other that we can get like reasonable signal to do this type of analysis? And this happens over and over again. And, you know, like late game situations or you know, two minute drill or four minute drill or all this stuff. It's all there. Different defensive fronts. Like, you know, are we take facing an odd front or an even front. This is just like, you know, it's not even half of the things that the coaching staff will start to look at and do cuts on, uh, video cuts and data cuts to be able to do their weekly analysis. Like, it's a crazy, crazy complicated sport and context in all these situations really matters. Well, the, how, how do you figure that out um, beyond having, you know, it's subject matter experts? And I've, I've noticed that this is very anecdotal, but even for subject matter experts, sometimes can have different answers to what they believe something will be. If a player is doing the wrong thing, then you could have the wrong answer as to what you think the coach is doing. Um, there's just a lot of different ways that you can be wrong in this sort of thing. And I, I have a, I have an idea that um, I've seen coaches where they'll say that, you know, X play was identified incorrectly on some data set or some insights off of data you know, 5% of the time. So therefore it's worthless sort of thing. Like I'd, ra I'd rather just do it myself. But these are all different issues where, you know, like what's good enough? What's the threshold of being good enough? Because you're never going to be able to hit perfection on these. So that's a great question. Uh, part of it depends on how deep their staff is, right? Like how much right. time do they have in order to attack these problems every single week? Um, can you create a machine learning loop that says that, okay, these are the, the pattern information that we have on this. Like we're like 98% clear on these ones, but sometimes we're only 70%. So like, you're going to want to look at the 70% first and maybe go backwards. Uh, so like you're giving the customer more information to identify the potential holes. Maybe you take the information, allow them to fill in the correct info and then feed that back into your, your sort of like learning loop and your AI um, algos to, to then give them better information in the future, which then saves them time. Like that's, that's the point at which they really start to care, right? Can we save you enough time to get an extra round of golf in or so that you don't have a nap underneath your desk? Like, because like you so don't you can have see your children, you can see your on. children twice a week instead of once a week. Exactly. Like all these things are, are valuable. And so like the time perspective is a, is a big one. Um, you know, some staffs will still be like, oh, it's never going to be good enough. But then other ones are like, man, like we just have so much more time to do smart work as opposed to grunt work around classification. Uh, because you've gotten good enough at it that, you know, it, we're comfortable with it. And that's a big deal, too. Um, so you are going to what's the conference that you're going to hear for the high school football coaches coming up? It's it's all football coaches. It's the American, oh, it's all football football, coaches. American Football Coaches Association in Charlotte uh, will be there this weekend. We'll have a big booth. And it is it is probably the most, you know, large framed men in one place that doesn't involve like WWE tryouts or something like that. <laughs> now, do, do you feel your testosterone levels rising being there or by contrast, are you feeling a little meek by see, seeing all of these guys running around potentially, you know, might give you a wedgie or something when you're not looking? You know, it's, it's fun for me because I, I have lived this life already in the soccer space across multiple languages. And sometimes, you know, you, you meet a coach and he's like, well, I don't want anything to do with this. And in the early days, you kind of have an argument about it. And then like, you just decide that arguing is a waste of everybody's time. It's like putting lipstick on the pig. 
and and so like look i'm just gonna leave it if you're if your staff comes to us later and wants help with this that's great but i'm not gonna convince you of anything and like you know there's no point in me spending my time and resources doing that in america it's really different. First of all, it's all the same language for the most part. Uh, and in yeah. the football coaching's perspective, you get some different accents, but the language is yeah. mostly the same. Um, and then like everybody understands the value of data. Everybody's seen Moneyball and people are not afraid of information. And this is the, like, the crucial thing. Like your average Twitter dudes like, oh, well, coaches don't think this or coaches don't think that. And you have no idea what you're talking about. Like these coaches will spend hours every single week on something that gets them a 1% thing that they understand, right? 1% better chance to win as long as I understand it and believe in that. So like if it's data, that's fine. If it's information like on a player, that's fine. If it's a visualization, that's fine. They really care and they are not afraid of that. They want to find more of it. Okay. So how much when you're there, are you learning from them and maybe a subset that how much are you learning, like how to interact, what they may want, how to frame things and how much are you just learning, which may feed back into how you want to, to build the product now, understanding their thinking a little bit better, even on how it can help from the ground up and that and that sort of product development. So I want to answer your question, but first. You have yes. been here. You're pretending like I'm the expert. Like you have lived. <laughs> I'm not, I, I have not been to the coaches association, so I can't. I've only been to Sloan Conference with a bunch of other, you know, pimple-faced uh, college nerds uh, there. So I, I don't really, I don't know. You, you've You're so been mean. there, and they have good complexions. <laughs> they've, they've grown out of that. <laughs> they, that's true. It's actually that that used to be more of the case. Now it's there's so much marketing going on there. There are actual like women at the conference sometimes. Um, it's it's a shocking development there. To, to answer your question, um, I have loved our journey in talking to coaches. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not like hyping this for any reason other than I like to learn. I'm very passionate about learning new stuff. When we have talked to teams over the course of the last year, they have regularly taught us about their problems. And plenty of times you're like, oh, I have no idea. Like I literally about three hours ago talked to a Canadian football coach that was teaching us all of the different eccentricities that they have in Canada. And I was like, this is fascinating. This is like so cool. They have like worldwide roster spots and they also have like, you know, they have to, they have to balance their Canadian players and their American players because they have quotas like on the, on the field and stuff like that. Like, this is amazing. I, I would never have thought about that. Obviously you get 12 players as opposed to 11. Like it's really cool. So one of the things that we hear um, from these coaches and talking to them is like their specific problems. Like one guy um, or one one team, NFL team, it's like, we have three different practice facilities. And out of those, we get different wearables information from like two of them. And it's difficult for us to, to sort of join those up in the physical data and make sure that we have reliable information at all times on every player. Like, you know, that's something that we would love to have solved. Another one that I think was incredible was we were talking to a service academy and they were the first group that said, Hey, could you collect data on our practices? And I will tell you, this is still not in any projections that we have right now in StatsBomb. Like investors are like, oh, you know, how are you going to grow? Well, this is a completely underserved space. And coaches have, and analysts have not had nearly good enough tools built for them to be able to do this. Many times you go into a new team and you have to build shit from the ground up. Like you, you can't build on the things that you had before because that's proprietary over there. So like we're kind of doing that. But they said, can you collect data on our practices? And we're like, yeah, but can you tell me a little more about why? 
And one of the earliest things that they said was, well, if we gave you all the samples of things that we care about and that players are sort of working hard on, um, we have four running backs. We know that the number one running back is a really good one. And then two through four, we argue about amongst the coaching staff all the time. If we could get just a little more objective information about which of those guys might be, you know, higher in the depth chart, especially in the area of, you know, the transfer portal and NIL and stuff like that, like that would give us a lot better information to be able to make player personnel decisions going and reps decisions and whatever over the course of the next year and the next two years. And I'm like, wow, that's incredible. I, I had no idea. And you have this conversation, this type of conversation, but totally different words all the time and they teach you new stuff. That's amazing. Like for somebody like me that loves to learn, like this is incredible. It's such a deep well. Well, I mean, I, I, let's go down the well a little bit there. How, how do you tell if a running back is better than than someone else? Because I think you could probably get some different answers on on that one. I think that's true too. I think certain types of running plays, you would find you know guys that make better reads and stuff like that, and maybe that's something that you you know you want to give you know without telling too much that this is the type of play that we're going to run with this personnel in. Yeah, uh, maybe that's interesting for them. But really, for them, you know, another thing that somebody said was, "Man, I hate recruiting high school kids." If I could get just a little information about them and also get an information about which guys are definitely not good enough so that I could communicate to the booster or the parent or the this or the that, that, hey, they're not a you know University of Oklahoma type player or something like that. That would be super valuable to me as a coach. And you're like, oh, okay. So we've seen this in, in soccer as well. You'll get agent fed players all the time. And one of the best things that like radar visualizations do is they teach you very early, this guy's not good enough. This guy's bad. And ha knowing that, you know, 80% of the guys are bad, so you don't need to spend any time on them, is actually a huge efficiency in your, your scouting budget. Okay, well, yeah, we, 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 won't, we won't get into radar, radar, radar <laughs> talk on, on here. That's a whole, that's another whole podcast if you wanted to defend. I, I'm a defender of the radar, um, so, so you'll, be ha you'll be happy to, to hear that. Um, so wait, if you're, <laughs> we're talking about, like, which guys you want to go after. Is this all based on computer vision type of stuff is 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 some of the work that you're doing a direct replacement for you know you mentioned wearables and things like that that you could use a lower cost more transferable you know type of replacement for that sort of stuff how, how are we talking about collecting that sort of information so um our data set right now, we have base data uh, like we do in soccer and uh, American football. Uh, we also have 360 in soccer, which is where is everybody at on each event? Uh, so about 3,400 events per play. In American football, the base data actually has 360 inside of it. So like we have, I don't know how many times we update, anywhere between 10 and 25 times, depending on how long the play is. Like we know who everybody is and where they are at on the football pitch. Uh, it's about two and a half times per second, effectively. Um, but we're building a frame-by-frame -frame tracking uh, set that we actually are in prototype right now. Um, that will turn into a, a full-featured data set uh, basically in the middle of the year uh, for college and for NFL. Um, and you know, you use all 22 as much as possible to be able to do it. You'll be able to pull physical metrics out of that. So like you, you know, verifiable physical metrics that we will then validate with your GPS information so that we can make sure that you're comfortable, um, with the info. And that's what we're talking about a little bit around kind of the computer vision process and the AI process, being able to, to make sure that, you know, it not only knows that this player was here, but it tracked him throughout the whole play and it's able to give you information about his movements there as well. 
Okay. And we're also looking at players and the type of information that you're able to collect on it. One thing where you, you said before, you know, sometimes even if you don't have the most sophisticated data, knowing how to analyze it, probably having a longer history, like if you were to compare a player recruit today um, that you may want to pick up in the, you know, via the transfer portal, how good is this player or not? Well, you have a pretty decent sample, maybe if you've been collecting data for the last year or two, but you're not necessarily going to have data to go back 10 years unless we're talking about actual game footage. Even then, I'm not sure exactly how it works. How, how do you think about that whole thing? Because that's kind of always the missing piece sometimes when you have new data sources is you don't have the history also to go along with it. You don't have the history, but if it's a much better data source that has like you know, 10 times as much data, like you're probably getting a lot of signal out of what exists. Um, and maybe you can have some comparatives. We would love to be able to do more historic data over time. Uh, it's, it's mostly a matter of getting access to the video itself and then having time to be able to grind on it. But, you know, in soccer, like we've got data back to 2015, 16 across all the big leagues. Um, you know, I'd love to do a decade or more of the NFL, uh, because I think that that's really fun data sets to, you know, what if you did you watch the last dance, uh, the Michael Jordan, uh, Netflix yes. thing? Yes. yes. Right. And now think of like being able to go backwards for all of this video that we've got. And the NFL probably has better video archives than anybody else in, in any other sporting entity in the whole world. They've, they've taken very good care of their stuff. Think about going back into history and uncovering like all of the historic stuff on the new data standards that we have, like as best as possible. Uh, you know, you might not be able to do the 60s and the 70s, but like once you get into the 90s, you get some pretty good video quality, multi-angle type stuff that you could do computer vision on as well. Uh, so like we would love to be able to do that historically. We've done it a little bit in soccer with UEFA uh, and collecting, you know, things back to 1996 with them. And I think that that would give like so much, um, you know, nostalgic, but also nerdy strategy, statsy type stuff to uh, the history of these leagues that hasn't really existed before. And you could sort of refresh your history with like a new look and new approach. Do you have any ideas on, okay, so, you know, things are done kind of the way they've always been done a lot of the ways. And then now when we have new data being introduced, especially the time-saving sort of efficiency enhancing stuff that we're talking about here, you know, how, let's say, a coaching staff was put together in the past and different QC analysts and others that are that are coming along there um, was based on not necessarily having this same sort of data. Do you think the data and how it's worked could even change, you know, the structure of how you put together a coaching staff, the structure of how you put together a front office or any of those sorts of ideas. Maybe you wouldn't want to say to somebody like, Hey, maybe you shouldn't, you should have, you should hire this person. But I'm trying to think of more kind of macro perspective on how things, if you were building things from the ground up, having the data that we have today, how would it change how you'd want to it's a great these, question. these organizations? Yeah. yeah. So this is a great question. What you want is you want metadata of everybody that has worked in a coaching staff historically for all time, right? Um, mm -hmm. I, and it's come up recently because Mike Lynch or Mike Leach had so many guys that were part of his coaching family tree. Um, and what you want to say is like, all right, looking at who you have worked with in these different areas and also looking at a bit of you know, the play calling that you've done as an OC or a DC here, or maybe a wide receivers coach, this is what this looks like. Uh, but knowing what your your sort of lineage looks like, we know or we believe that you're a pretty good candidate to run an offense in this style that we want to run. 
we know that there's only one or two styles of offense that we we have the personnel for right now or that we want to run so like can we find guys that can do that and can we find the very best couple of candidates that are capable of doing that well if you've got the data approach and you have the output approach and you kind of know what their learning was then it's really interesting and coaching what, one of the things people do not understand about coaching is it is not a book learning thing like you can learn from books but it is so practice and applicable right like it is applied all the time it's like being a plumber like you go into a new house like what is the problem you listen to the person talk about it okay i think this is the problem now when i investigate it what is the actual problem now how do i fix this problem right this is the thing that coaches do every single play what is the personnel out there what is the the opposing personnel what does their scheme look like what are our basket of tricks or what what set of things can we call as plays to be able to potentially succeed in the situation against them? You're doing this all the time. And then you go to the next one, like, and you look at the next opposition. And so given all of this information about the opposition, like maybe what installs do we want to do this week? What plays do we want to practice more often that we're going to run in game situations, et cetera, et cetera. So they learn by doing things over and over again, and they can only occasionally sort of add new things into it during the course of the season. And then maybe they work under somebody or they go teach with somebody or they learn from other people in their groups during the off season. But when you learn during the season, you're learning from all the people that you're with every single week. And like, you know, you have these conversations, these arguments about which thing is better, which thing is worse. That's how they actually learn. And so you can't just expect them to change their stripes immediately to do the thing that you want to do. They probably have to have a lot of historic information about this is the how we want to call plays, how we want to execute in situations, and this is what I am probably capable of doing. People will lie to you in interviews. They, they will tell you, hey, we want to execute this thing. Oh, yeah, I know how to do that. I did that here, or I learned from this guy that did that. But you need to have at least a little bit of information that says you have done this and we believe that you're telling the truth because we know that you've been under these guys who did the same thing that we want to do. Um, it's, it's one of the hardest things in a front office to be able to execute on a regular basis is to hire good coaches sequentially, time after time after time. You know, you, you have me thinking a little bit about the... Okay, so from a coaching angle, if you're learning from the other coaches let's say further up the the food chain maybe further up the the hierarchy in a particular organization um i'm trying to think of a way now and i know there are like coaching clinics there's more things available on youtube there's other things that are available i wonder if there's like a better way now to be able to compile or figure out best practices in a way where coaching isn't as subject to learning from the person you learned from who learned from this other particular person. And then now you're just a function of the end of this tree, as opposed to being able to bring things, uh, more things in, like I said, best practices and other direct and other, uh, and other areas. I don't know, just something I was thinking about there. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. I'm sure that it can be done better in a lot of situations. One of the things I always find fascinating being in rooms is like, which guys are asking questions, um, you know, not necessarily like during the meeting, but after the meeting, like, hey, coach, you said yeah. this in this situation. Why? You know, like, let me let me learn a little more about this. Like, why do we need to do that? Why does that make sense? You know, was there a second option here that, you know, you thought was like almost as good? And some coaches are good about driving that interaction, but then other ones are not. And some guys don't talk in meetings. And I'm like, man, how are you like processing this? Like, where is the discussion happening? Um, and, you know, I'm not always around during all their conversations, but I think that for all of these guys that are trying to take control of their careers on the coaching or the analysis side, like why 
and what were the other options and you know which thing might be might we do in the future if like this doesn't work like these are all really important questions for you to learn because it teaches you the critical path for like your own job in the future when you're faced with these same situations yeah yeah okay let's one more question before i let you get it or i know i've taken about an hour of your time here um this this sounds like an interview question myself but it's like a few years down the road where do you want the American football product to be? What, what, what's your path as far as, you know, on a looking at high school, recruiting from high school, looking at colleges, looking at the NFL, the products that will be involved there? Or is there a lot of stuff you don't, you don't know? And maybe the, the winds will and the, and the stream and the path will push you in some different directions for where you want to be down the road here. I, I think as, as somebody who's founded a business and run it for a while, like I'm, I'm cautious to, to lock us into to pass because we will learn a lot. But one of my goals, and again, this is based off of learning so much from people that we've talked to already. We want to be integral in like their daily lives. And what, what you may or may not realize, and probably everybody that listens to this podcast does realize, is that people who work in sports are unbelievably passionate about their jobs on average. And, and you know, this is a pretty big skew. Uh, they're there. They're often taking sacrifices in their money. They're obsessing about this during, you know, all of their downtime and the off season because they love it. They genuinely love it. And what I think is that if you build good products for those people and save them time and allow them to think smarter, um, they will love your product and, and you will sort of be part of the fabric of American football. And that, while a huge goal and maybe unattainable, is what we have set for ourselves. Can we build great data products so that we can be part of the fabric of American football from high school through college on into the pros every single day? And I think that that is a laudable goal and something that we are going to strive for as long as we can. And we'll do it across multiple sports too, but this is the other sport that I'm hyper passionate about. I'm not going to make the sacrifices to be a professional football coach. And I respect those people that choose that path, but can we at least make their, their quality of life better? And can we make the game better and the learnings better as part of the process? That's what we want to do. Well, it's a, it's an exciting goal, something that I I'm rooting for you guys. And, uh, hoping to see your success and making the game better along the way. Uh, once again, everyone, this is Ted Knutson. You can follow him on Twitter at Mixed Nuts. That's K-N-U-T-S. Anything else you want to plug, you want to talk about? I'm not sure how on the public side, it, what, what people can view here as far as your uh, American football stuff. We're cautious right now in what we're releasing. We're still, you know, kind of early days and making sure that everything is right. Um, expect to see a lot more of stuff come out from us over the course of this year. We'll do more NFL-based stuff uh, as we go along. In fact, there may be a data set. There probably will be a data set that comes out in 2023 from us available to the public for everybody. In the meantime, I just want to say thanks a lot. A lot of insight, insightful questions. And it's good to talk to somebody who's been in the industry for, for quite a while and, and doing so much cool work. Well, thank you too. And uh, hopefully you learned, you got a little bit from this interview, about a tenth of uh, or hundredth of what, of what I got from it. So thanks for your time, Ted. And again, continued success going forward.